Hello and welcome to On War, the podcast. Tonight, Austin and I discuss those who would fight purely for coin. Despite the mercenary's questionable place as either a legitimate or honourable combatant, the world still seems to have a place for the soldiers of fortune. How do we understand this duality? And are there any lessons from history that may help? So, continuing on a a bit of a theme from uh, last fortnight, we're still talking about people who are paid for war, but we're moving inland this time, Austin, and uh, today we're talking about mercenaries. Kind of getting sick of saying this, but like most things, and like all of human conflict, it's got a long history... (laughs) But, it, you know, it's, it's one of these things. A lot of these practices we look at, a lot of the ideas we look at, um, sometimes we're uh, projecting a sort of anachronistic understanding of, of things, but the conduct of war, a lot of it hasn't fundamentally changed in a long time. So, so without beating around it too much, there's a, a couple of sort of historical points with mercenaries we should probably look at um, before we start going into any modern legal definitions. It's been one of those things that has, has been around for a very long time. So one of my favorite sort of forgotten mercenaries, if you like, is actually... Um, Militatus, but this is a gentleman who at various points commanded a company of about 500 men through about around the 5th century BCE. And he's interesting for figuring prominently in the Battle of Marathon, not so much as a um, force commander, but in actually as a sort of a contracted expert, if you like. He, he brought his command along with him, but he's most well known for actually formulating the Athenian strategy and helping them win the Battle of Marathon. So he, this is sort of an interesting example of a, of a historical mercenary, but also as a, a contracted expert, a military advisor, if you like. And it's worth starting with, with Militatis because he, he does straddle that line between a traditional mercenary commander, as you'd sort of expect, and what we're seeing more and more when you delve into actually the conduct of mercenary conflict, which is this actually hiring of experts. Now, it, it is really easy to sort of look at warfare from a theoretical perspective and, and miss the point, which is that it's actually a skill like any other. Um, and those who dedicate their lives to, to conflict, and particularly professional soldiers, gain a very valuable skill set to societies. And particularly in sort of, when we look at from a historical perspective, the sort of the war-torn centuries of, for example, the the 15th, 16th centuries, and and now the 21st century, that skill base is actually hard to acquire. And so it becomes very valuable, particularly when a state is trying to rapidly or drastically increase their force capability. They'll turn to experts like militares, and as we go forward, you'll see others. So the other side of this, and and much like the, the career of sort of privateers, is in that sort of that combination of an ex- expert skill set as a fighting soldier, but also the rapid acquisition. Unlike uh, looking at a fighting navy, one can raise a rabble of of peasant soldiers or of of local people fairly easily and fairly quickly. But if you want to have a a real ability to project force and to conduct a campaign professionally, that really is the job of, of professional soldiers and. Before the formation of the nation-state and the, the development of the, the citizen-soldier, which is a product primarily of the uh, Napoleonic Wars and subsequently, again, you've got, much like the privateer, you have organizations and individuals willing to contract that out for sale. So although the investment is nowhere near as high as a navy, again, it's, it's expedient if you have a profitable civilian economy that to um, rather than draining on your civilian workforce to create a standing citizen army or even a standing citizen reserve, it's expedient to contract 
professionals and professional forces for specific engagements or specific terms of contract. So one of the best, although certainly not the earliest, examples of this were the um, condottieri of Renaissance Italy. Uh, The name comes directly from the idea of a contract. These were the contracted soldiers. And these were um, military forces, organized companies, usually under a particular commander, usually veterans from European wars, from feudal wars, of varying sizes, anywhere from a couple of dozen to a a few hundred, that the city-states of Renaissance Italy would contract either for defense or for raids or even wars against other Italian city-states. Now, as the time progressed, they became more and more powerful as as the wealth of those city-states kind of flowed into their purses and the contracts got longer and longer. This is actually the root of Machiavelli's warning to the prince about the use of mercenaries, because there were a couple of times when their contracts were defaulted on, or they decided that they were actually more powerful than the city-state that had contracted them, and so they thought that instead of just being paid what they were owed, they could just take over, and they did. So there were a couple of notable examples of Condottieri actually seizing power, political power, what Machiavelli works, uh, warns about. But uh, in general, that was that was the notion of, of the thing. A city-state does not have the manpower to run both a civilian economy and hold a full-time standing army. Uh, and you had a lot of combat veterans from Western Europe particularly who were out looking for work. They decided that going back to the farmland, just honestly, like it really didn't pay as well. I mean, the, the Venetian city-states and the, uh, the rest of northern Italy was it's quite a wealthy area to be operating under. Um, much more so than farming. Absolutely. And, you know, for ease of understanding of, of some of our listeners, what we're going to be talking to, um, particularly in the historical aspect, is you see three basic kinds of mercenary emerge. You've got your um, experts, your military experts, that come to, to do certain things, so either train soldiers, build certain equipment, you know, provide expertise in the use of, for example, early artillery. And then you've got what Alistair was talking about, you're, you're very sort of what you'd expect, a mercenary band, and they would do all sorts of weird and wacky stuff we'll go into in a little bit. Um, you know, Alistair mentioned that sometimes they'd take over. The Dutch Walloons, for example, made an art form of what they called the, the, the strike, an early strike. They would basically refuse to fight or go looting. Until they got paid. And and for a large part of the 15th century, it was quite common for such mercenary forces to go unpaid until they went on strike. And the last uh, sort of group we see are your foreign guards. Um, and you see this now. One of the latest surviving ones, of course, is the Swiss Guard um, that guard the Pope. Now, of course, now they have submachine guns and armoured vehicles as opposed to the halberd they used to have. But it was at, at a certain period of time, it was very common for European monarchs to have a foreign guard of mercenaries that were their closest sort of guardians. Now, around the 19th century, this shifted in large aspect to native troops. Um, But some of the more famous ones are, of course, the Varangian Guard, who were in the Byzantine Empire from the 11th to 14th centuries. These guys were... Sorry, I just want to jump in here, because these guys are... I know you've followed them as well yourself, but they're sort of a favourite of mine, because the Varangian Guard were Vikings. Various Norse groups had done a huge amount of trade all over the world, and this particular mob had shown up in the Byzantine Empire around the, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think the 10th century? Yeah, they were. Um, they actually arrived in Byzantium or the Eastern Roman Empire because they were trading down the Rus River, which of course is in modern Russia, which is where the term the Rus, which then turned into Russia. So they show up and um, some of them, some number of them at some point decided that they were better off 
uh, fighting and drinking rather than trading, and uh, they found a contract uh, with the, the Byzantinians that they lasted until the late 14th century, as I understand it, as in varying sizes, either as personal bodyguard or as full-blown shock troops. Yeah, um, of course, as we get towards the end of that period, uh, we see what happens in a lot of these guards, which is uh, the sort of, forgive me, this sounds really bad, but it's not the sort of purity um, and so we get a lot of Saxon troops um, fleeing the Normans. Some Normans themselves rock up. Basically anyone who was Northern European and wanted to fight for the, the Byzantians was led into the Varangian Guard towards the end there. Because if you're a Byzantinian, it's just another white guy, right? Yeah, basically. But it's not the only one. The French, for example, had the Scottish Guard for a long time, which was basically just Scottish exiles. Famously in the American Rebellion or the American War of Independence, they talk about the foreign king and that's to do with at that point, the King of England's relationship with Germany, and particularly his use of Landsknecht, which were German soldiers, ge- effectively German mercenary soldiers, which portrayed to, you know, to, the, to the English colonists in America this perspective of a, of a, of a foreign intervention against them, a German intervention against them, which, which puts a, a very particular skew on that particular conflict as compared to its, uh, the modern mainstay narrative today. Uh, after, of course, America, the rise of American nationalism, American national identity, which makes England a foreign power at the time, that wasn't how it was seen at all. But the ruler and the forces they were encountering, as far as they were concerned, were German, and German mercenaries at that. And the Landschneck were, of course, the most famous of the sort of 16th century mercenary companies. We see. Of course, during this period, you had the Thirty Years' War, which is the last major conflict that used mercenaries as the majority of troops. Um, but also things like what the troop type that replaced the Landschneck, the Spanish Tercio. Um, you got to remember, this is surprisingly common at the time, right? The vast majority of European states in the, between the 15th and the 18th centuries used mercenaries extensively. Now, the, these mercenaries, particularly when you look at roving bands like the Condottori, these are hardened veterans that often have their own equipment, which is better than what a state could provide, um, and they don't run away very easily. Of course, you know, as Alistair mentioned, you can raise a rabble. But it remains a rabble, right? And if they're under artillery fire, they're much more likely to break and run. Of course, the danger of mercenaries, of course, is they're working for money. And so there are instances where simply you can play to that self of self-preservation that you can't with nationalized troops. So, for example, in 1558, when the Russians or early Russia Tsarist troops invaded Livonia, um, they were able to minimize the effect of Livonian mercenaries simply by offering generous terms of surrender in cases where they were going to win. Of course, the stick that went with that carrot was when the mercenaries surrendered, the Russians took every single one of their names. The The uh, implication being if they got caught again, they'll be executed. Mm. And it worked. There's records that very few of them actually rejoined the army that was paying them. Mm. And the other thing about mercenaries, that's before you start getting into any normative judgments of the practice itself is that it's, it's a very old answer to a very old problem of what a soldier does when they return to civilian life. And this remains a modern pod- problem today. And you see the recruiting pool for modern private military com- corporations and private security companies come from similar pools. Soldiers who, uh, who don't adjust, who, who either for personal reasons, for um, reasons of experience, of age... Even economic reasons. E- economic reasons, because their buddies do it, for whatever choice they realized that for them they either can't or won't make that transition back to a civilian career and they do have a skill set that's valuable now we see this today in in, in terms of post-traumatic stress disorder um and civilian adjustment issues but 
it's it's a problem that's been a problem for soldiers for as long as there have been soldiers, which is thousands of years. It's only now when we put the modern spin of the the moral supremacy, if you like, of the of the citizen soldier and the national army, which is a very modern idea. It is almost entirely Napoleonic, post-Napoleonic as a concept. Um, that's kind of restricted this, I guess, um, career outlet for soldiers that's that's put them in this position. Absolutely. I mean, what I'm about to talk about, of course, and what Alice is leading to is the fact that for large portions of the period we're talking about here, the 15th to 19th century, it was incredibly common, very acceptable for particularly officers um, to transfer between armies, fight for other nations. Um, and a reason for that, of course, was that Europe was always at war, but the individual European powers often weren't. Um, and so, of course, the most famous literary example of this is Othello. You know, and a modern reader might read Othello and think, oh, that's a bit weird. There's a black man running Venetian Navy, Venice's Navy. Well, actually, that was incredibly common. That's sort of the, the story that's being told by Othello himself in the play. He's talking about, he talks about why uh, Desdemona could possibly love him. He, who has only ever known battle his entire life. What he's saying is he's moved around, he's, he talks about moving around the world and seeing all different bat, all these different ports of call and all these different battles, but it's always in that sort of context. He, He's moved from war to war to war as his services have been required. Um, it's a fascinating character analysis. If you're you know, not catching on to this podcast because your English teacher sent you here by accident, uh, that's something you can do as well. It's, it's, it, those kinds of characters pop up again and again in literature because it's a, it's a powerful image. Yeah, and they are based on real-life characters, real-life uh, soldiers and, and the like. You know, it, it was incredibly common, as I said, for military troops to transfer, and it was considered okay. Of course... In certain times during this time period, it was considered not okay to fight the nation you came from. Um, that's, a, that's a little in poor yeah. taste. But at other times, no one really cared. I'll give you an example. Eugene of Savoy is one of the most successful Austrian military commanders during the War of Spanish Secession. But he initially applied to the French army, because he's from Savoy, which is closer to France than, than Austria, and he was denied. And instead, his family encouraged him to become a priest, because he didn't want to be a priest, and so he went and joined the Austrian army instead and became one of their senior military commanders. Worked out well for him in the medium term, at least. Worked out very well for him in the medium term. In other cases, it's less about the money and more about a nationalist sort of perception. Now, in the Napoleonic Wars, which, of course, Alice has referred to, a large proportion of the Russian high command was, in fact, Germanic, and in most cases, Prussian. Now, for two reasons. Some of them predated the war and had come into Russian service um, because of the Russians had a long-standing tradition of employing foreigners. And so by the time we get around to the Napoleonic Wars, you've got this mix of Germanic and Prussian officers who've joined for the reasons we were talking about before. And then in the case of Clausewitz and his ilk, people who were really pissed off to see the Prussians get the shit kicked into them by the French and wanted an army that could help. And they really did get the shit kicked out of them. And the Prussians went into the Napoleonic Wars thinking they would win, and they did not at all. And so they went and joined the Russians. And for a large extent, the reason we have Germany in its current state at the moment is because the Russians came and rebuilt the Prussian economy and Prussian military during the Napoleonic Wars. We've been talking about history for a good 15 minutes now. And, and I think a large number of our audience, particularly people of our generation or a little bit earlier, will be thinking, but, but what about the private military corporations we know today, Sandline International, Blackwater, Executive Outcomes, and also... From their perspective, or particularly from my perspective and my interest in it, the Wild West days 
the Soldiers of Fortune. That was a, actually a, a, a magazine for a while until it got shut down because of controversy. But the um, the wonderfully colourful characters we get between the late 1940s all the way through the 1970s in the colonial conflicts. Uh, examples being like, for example, Tim Spicer, who was actually a um, CEO of Sandline International from 1995 to 2000. He was involved in the Bougainville issue. A former SAS soldier who became a, uh, a mercenary, as it were. One of my favourites, uh, the so-called Mad Mike, uh, Michael Hore, who was a, an Irishman who got involved in all sorts of wonderful controversies. You'll uh, find his uh, account of the Katungan incident uh, in the show notes. And I would encourage all our readers, if you're curious and, and want a good, at the very least, a, an exciting and interesting read, it's well worth uh, checking out. But that's sort of, I guess, the modern in- example of a mercenary. And, and those Wild West days, the, 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 before they became corporate, the Mad Mikes and, and Tim Spices of the world, they, that's the image of a mercenary we have today. But it really, in the full history of it all, that those individuals or those not so much companies, but bands, associated bands of a dozen or so guys who grab a whole bunch of locals and go native in Africa or um, Southeast Asia, they're really an outlier. I mean, that's the image of the mercenary we have today, and that's the issue, the pushback in international law. That's what that, that what modern international law is pushing back against. But then, from in the history of things, I mean, they're exciting and they're interesting, but they're not the norm at all. You've got a couple of examples of some Russian pilots that you know of. I mean, what Alistair talks about when he says that, you know, we have issues at the moment with, with uh, servicemen who aren't well looked after or, or transition well. Uh, this is, again, it's new. Um, there is always a... a temptation to talk about history and military history particularly is cyclical and you always got to be careful of that sorry, but I, sorry i just have to jump in here there's a correction it's, it's kalamata not katunga katunga of course is the, the first united nations peacekeeping operation that the irish contributed to that's a completely different um conflict to uh mad uh, mad mike Hore's incidents in kalamata i'm mixing up my, my african countries starting okay um uh, yeah, so there, there isn't anything of it as cyclical, but it's not. I mean, you look at early 14th, 15th century mercenaries and you see similar stuff happen. Um, look at the late 1870s, you see similar things happen with, with Americans violating the Neutrality Act to go and take over certain South American countries. Um, but also, um, following the collapse of militarily powerful states in ways that aren't sustainable, what you see is a a mass exodus of highly skilled individuals that have no other way to really support themselves. And so South Africa, after the, the collapse of apartheid and the reorganization of their military is one, of course, that's where we get the image of the South African mercenary, because in reality, you had a whole bunch of very experienced, very, very um, lethal individuals suddenly be out of work. Sandline International, although they were headed by Tim Spicer, who was a Brit, um, were in, was involved in the Bougainville crisis in the 90s, and which Australia has a somewhat culpable his- involvement in as well. Um, but these were these were South African mercs by and large, and, and this is post-apartheid, so these were guys who were basically out of work following the South African reforms, and they joined Sandline, and, and the PNG government, again, having a little bit more money than they really had military trained, trained military manpower and materiel, contracted a, a mercenary company to pacify the Bougainville uprisings, and Australia looked the other way. Um, but also, I mean, Alistair referred to this a second ago, Following the collapse of the Soviet Union, you had everyone knows that following the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was a mass sort of proliferation of arms and former Soviet weaponry, but also military personnel. And again, taking a step back to last uh, recording, last podcast, you'll know that we talked about sort of the black market and black fleets and this sort of thing. Russian, former Russian and former Soviet Union 
um, airmen particularly, um, show up all the time flying former Soviet military equipment, including the Antonov um, plane. Primarily cargo transport. I mean, Aleutian 76 and the various Antonov planes are fantastic for rough, uh, rough, la- rough strip landings. Which, if you want, if you've got a, a stretch of Africa that's reasonably flat, you want to drop off anything, yeah, of and course. you don't want people to know about it. The, the the implication, of course, is that they're they're smuggling arms shipments and illegal stuff, and they do. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, yeah, food, um, humanitarian aid, and the like. Most countries will not risk trained military personnel who they'll have to account for in areas of the world where it's not safe. Um, and certainly they wouldn't take that risk to accommodate NGOs. And so the, in response, the NGOs will go to legitimate transport companies who will go to subcontractors. And these subcontractors are often former Soviet Union military personnel. Yeah, military it's just drunk Sergei and his Antonov who wants, who wants to fly doesn't want to become a metal worker or whatever back in the Ukraine. Um, and if he pays gas and his vodka bill and a bit of pocket money, which, like I say, a bit of pocket money, I'm willing to bet it's, it's a, a good living. It's a good living. Um, it's an incredibly dangerous living, of course. Um, you know, anyone who t- takes a look at some of the the least, the less popular sort of internet news articles will see that, you know, every couple of months there's a mysterious cargo plane crash in the desert somewhere and no one's really willing to say it was ours. Um, that's often these guys who are quite regularly cut left cut and dry by the people that hire them of whether they're gray market white market or black market so just to fast forward this i guess because i want to deal with some issues of modern um international law and private militaries because particularly in the um recent events or the the not so much recent now but i guess in the iraq conflict pmcs really came to the forefront for a number of issues so to give a basic definition the the standing sort of um moment in International humanitarian law is, again, the Geneva Convention 1949 provides the framework, the legal framework for which we understand a mercenary. And it's that convention defined as, A, someone who is specifically recruited locally or abroad to fight, specifically to fight, mind you, in an armed conflict. So that immediately excludes our experts who are just advisors, right? That's the first loophole. B, does in fact take a direct part in hostility. So again, we're reinforcing that and excluding anyone who's an advisor immediately off the bat or anyone who's a security personnel. You know, they're not there to fight. They're just guarding the base, you know, and that's a big factor that that PMCs filled throughout the Iraq conflict was relieving um, national soldiers of of guard duty. Just to interrupt here, if if anyone's interested in looking at the ICRC's um, actual definition of direct participation in hostilities. Uh, there's a paper online from 2014 that will be in the show notes um, that will give you an example of what the international community actually considers direct participation in hostilities. It's a lot more limited than one would think. Yeah, and it's really worth going to the ICRC because they're the, the leading organization, NGO, in analyzing these these things. They're the sort of the go-to experts in this, unless you happen to be an international lawyer yourself, in which case we apologize for stepping on your toes. Um, so just continuing on this de- definition, and this is another key factor here, part C specifies that the person must be motivated to take part in the hostilities essentially by the desire for private gain and, in fact, is promised by or on behalf of a party to the conflict material compensation substantially in excess of that promised or paid to combatants of similar ranks or functions in the armed forces of that party. That's a lengthy sentence, but basically what they're saying, what they're excluding here is Freikorps or volunteers, foreign fighters who go here ideologically, even if they're paid a wage, if it's comparable to what a normal participant would be paid, and they can demonstrate that they're there for ideological reasons, 
they're not a, they're not a mercenary legally. So a classic example of this would be the um, American volunteer flyers over China in World War II. Um, most people involved in the Spanish Civil War on all six-ish sides of that conflict and just before World War II. But also the extensive use of third world mercenaries um, in places like Af- uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, because again, you can say, well, we're not paying them anything remotely comparable yeah, to what we pay a US soldier. If you pay them the same as irregular soldiers, they're just foreign recruits in your army, particularly if you put them in the uniform. So that's another loophole. What I'm trying to point out here is how many ways you can get around this, right? What a mercenary is legally versus what everyone will call a mercenary is a very different thing. So D obviously is not an, a national to any of the party of the conflict, nor a resident of the territory controlled by the party of the conflict. If they live there, they're probably involved in it personally. But but more so, if you look at Iraq and Afghanistan, that then excludes everyone who is a resident of a country that takes part in the coalition, for example, um, with the US, the UK, Russia, most of Europe, etc. Is not a member of the armed forces of the party. I mean, that's a pretty stock standard. If you're a, an, an actual soldier, you're an actual soldier. Um, F has not been sent by a state which is not party to the conflict on official duty as a member of its armed forces. Now, again, this is less a factor today. So particularly in the Cold War, less so today, but particularly in the Cold War and, and certainly previously, people who were given assignments of either a military or diplomatic or even business, sort of government business uh, nature, they would be covered by that. So you might send someone who's uh, an advisor. This is, this is the classic Viet- pre-Vietnam War American advisors. They're sent there specifically on behalf of their government. An example of this, if you want to have a look at a particularly interesting one, is, of course, Edward Lansdale, who's come up in a previous episode. Peacekeeping for The, the other thing, I guess, it allows for is peacekeeping forces. So they're the uh, official armed forces of another state. Sent. They're not really party to a conflict, but they're official armed forces, so it creates that loophole, which is pretty legitimate. But, of course, it's, it's pretty f- fast and loose. I mean, I don't know anyone who wouldn't, who I've ever encountered throughout at least my, my student life, who wouldn't call a private security contractor or a private military corporation, a mercenary, that, that's, aside from, legal definitions aside, that's what they are, one way or another. Yeah, but unfortunately, again, and I know there's certain of our listeners who be like, oh no, he's going to say discourse, but I will say discourse. As Alistair's pointed out, there is a moral differentiation that's made between your citizen soldiers and your mercenaries in today's um, societal climate. And therefore, the, I, like Alistair may not have come across anyone, but I've come across people who would quite vehemently deny that a private military contractor is technically a mercenary. They call it a whole bunch of other things. Most of them are PMC-related individuals, and it's for that reason. Nobody really wants to be associated with that label because it is no, an, it an inherent really moral bad. judgment. Not just a moral judgment. It has an immediate legal consequence, and you deal with more international lawyers than I do as well, and they'll do it, again, for, for similar reasons. When I'm approaching this issue through my work, um, the definition I've adapted and the one I use is that a mercenary is a person or company whose business, be they employee or employer, is armed conflict of any scale. Now, I say business specifically to separate state practice from private enterprise. This is a, a private enterprise, but they may come from a state that's private party to the conflict, as far as I'm concerned. It's also doubly apt because it, it, it blurs the lines between mercenary and security in the same way that the PMCs and, and the lawyers do, um, in order to avoid the legal consequences. And I'm not casting a normative or moral judgment on their work, I think that that's not terribly helpful until they actually commit acts of uh, that are breaches of humanitarian law or are distinctly immoral. But it's a more useful definition, I think, when approaching this and trying to understand this as someone who's not an international lawyer and who... But I think Alice's definition also comes from a place and a theoretical standpoint we've talked about before. And that is simply that, you know, 
as human beings, we have a moral position on a lot of this stuff. But when you look at international relations, and, and realistically, when you look at real, in, international relations, you have to look at what the practicality is. Because that is, at the end of the day, what matters, right? We're talking about law. And when we talk about PMCs, we're talking about business and the business community. So who actually, you know, it, it does matter to an extent about the morality, but in practical terms, in analysis terms, we have to live in the now. We have to live in the reality, the practical function. So I also want to talk about modern PMCs for a second here because they are sort of the more relevant thing, I guess, for anyone dealing with any modern international relations, any students, or what have you. A modern PMC is, is, is completely corporate and, in fact, pretty close to the, the, the Italian um, idea of the condottori. It's much closer to that conception of, of, a, of a business practice, more formalized, more legal, um, lots more taxes and money being moved around. In 2005... So sort of just after the, the success in, in Iraq and when these guys were really get, buying up all the government contracts, the PMC industry was worth over $100 US billion globally. It's, I'm not quite sure what the numbers are today, but they'd be easily found. And that's sort of worth considering. This is not a couple of guys. This isn't even a couple of corporations. This is a $100 billion industry plus. And to give you a throw, another uh, number, just in the immediate after, aftermath of the 2003 invasion, some 20,000 private contractors across 25 different private security corporations, private military corporations, were employed by the American government in Iraq alone through for all sorts of areas. Security, training, obviously Blackwater is a famous example of convoy security and, and some of the, the problems that happened there, but also close protection services for diplomats and business people, but also in the provision of military services other than combat functions. So um, the guys that were providing IT solutions, uh, maintenance for aircraft, uh, the air conditioner guys were private security. Co- they were these corporations have diversified beyond just the sole. You can get involved in these guys as a good air conditioner repairman if they're if they're servicing a nation that's involved in a particularly hot area that has lots of air conditioners that need repairing, as Iraq was. So these are sort of things worth keeping in mind when you're looking at at the modern PMCs and, and sort of how they operate. It's also worth noting at this point that. The modern PMC really only accounts for two of the three characteristics of a mercenary we talked about earlier. Um, they are the trainers, they are the com- the complete military unit, but there's very little now um, acceptance of individual soldiers going and fighting for other states. Uh, of course, the French Foreign Legion still survives. That's not really a mercenary outfit per se. It's much more closer to the foreign guard type unit that we were talking about. Um, so there's a lot less sort of acceptance of people transferring, at least outside of Western democracy forces. And I think that's partly due to the Cold War, although we did see a lot less acceptance after the First World War of this sort of behavior of transfers. So why is this a problem? Why is there such a strong normative push and has been for a very long time? Like we mentioned before, Machiavelli pushes back and advises the, the, the archetypal prince against the employment of mercenaries. Um, now, of course, we have very strong, uh, I say very strong, now we have legal frameworks that prohibit this. Obviously, we've got examples of multi-billion dollar companies that can circumvent it, but we do have legal and normative frameworks that are supposed to stop the, um, the employment of mercenaries. W- where does this come from? What, what, what is, wh- why are we so against the idea of someone fighting for pay? I mean, after all, I get defense force Australian defense force recruiting ads on my Facebook page all the time. 
um, telling me about the wonderful career I could have in the Defense Forces as a electrician, as a air traffic control, you know, any number of combat and non-combat roles. And they sell it to me not through national, not through nationalism, but advertising a career for me. Where's the line? Where's the difference? I think it's, it's, we have to go back to the theory here, right? Um, you know, you have to remember that at the time a lot of these mercenaries were wandering around, you had, had fairly weak states in the Westphalian. The decline of at least Condottari-style mercenaries starts um, with the end of the Thirty Years' War, which, of course, is the Treaty of Westphalia. Weber talks about the the sole or the main aspect of a state's legitimacy being its its entitlement to the, be the sole user of legitimate force. Now, he talks about that in the domestic sense, but anyone de- dealing in international relations, and I have myself, when I've been writing on this, have adapted that to the international scene. Well, even, even most, most Weber scholars do. Um, and... and uh, Depending on which sort of IR and international security theoretic framework you take, you either have to um, or you can. So if you're a realist, for example, there is no domestic. And so Weber's maxim would apply to the international. Furthermore, there's simply a practical problem. And we talked about this last week when we were talking about private, our last session when we were talking about privateers. There's now a globalized economy um, where actions on one front can have global or regional economic consequences which a state wouldn't approve of and so there has to be a lot larger levels of control and stringent controls placed on force and on bandits because again when we talk about mercenaries there is a fine line between what we consider a mercenary and what another state might consider a bandit and that's this is the question of accountability which you're leading up to there is, has been obviously um one of the major uh, talking points around PMCs in Iraq, particularly. So Blackwater has involved a number of scandals, um, some of them of their own making. Uh, they certainly were involved in uh, very questionable deployments of, of lethal force and a whole bunch of actions. They were also the recipients in triggering the first Battle of Fallujah. It was Blackwater security contractors, not American soldiers who were caught and hung from the bridge outside Fallujah, triggering that particular battle. And this is sort of, this is one of those things. The PMCs themselves push back about this. I've got a quote here from uh, Nick Vandenberg mentioned in a uh, Leander's article from 2005, who claims that the fastest thing that would get us out of business is human rights violations, but Vandenberg's own company, Executive Outcomes, reportedly fired indiscriminately at obscured targets in Sierra Leone. So when you put that alongside um, Blackwater killings of civilians, 17 civilians in Baghdad in 2007, and other controversies that surround a whole bunch of other companies... I mean, the reality is you've got human beings in a conflict zone with weapons. Mistakes happen. People lose their temper. People lose their mental capacity to function, their emotional capacity to function. These things happen. But when it's a private company, the scales of accountability are very different. Yeah, and I think the scales of accountability are deliberately different, right? And so under the... I mean, we talked about the Geneva Convention earlier. Under international law as it's currently established, states have a responsibility to persecute and to investigate, or other way around, investigate and then persecute uh, alleged war crimes by their soldiers. And that's important, right? Their soldiers in their uniform. And if they fail to do so manifestly, then it, it becomes inherent on other states to do so. However, with private military contractors, because they're technically um, answer to no one other than their own internal structures, what has to happen, and this happened in, of course, Baghdad and, and in Afghanistan and, and elsewhere, and I, I say Baghdad because it often happens at a city level or a state legislative level, is the US particularly, but also other states, create what's called status of forces agreements. And these are quite normal. These usually apply to armed 
uniformed personnel and it's quite fine. Every state does that. It's typically things about who's responsible for feeding them, who has legal responsibility over them if they do something wrong, right? Yeah, a SOFA applies, is always signed by anyone stationing troops in a foreign country. Australia has SOFAs with the United States for their bases over here and, and that's that final point that we're getting here. Who has, under what laws that they may be charged and tried? And in the case of foreign military contractors, because they have a contract with a state power, they're often, and at least in practical terms, what they've often been used as is a special component of the Status of Forces Agreement, which specifically applies to them. And of course, no PMC is going to agree to operate under a Status of Forces Agreement that leaves their guys vulnerable to lawsuits or to criminal action by the state they're operating in. And so as part of their contracts, they're often protected, and then they have to be subject to domestic criminal law in the state they are operating under the jurisdiction of, so to speak. May, which may or may not apply, and that's a lot of the controversy behind Blackwater. The, the other point that I'd like to bring up here about um, IHL, it's sort of tr- tangential to that, but it relates to the, the, laws, the other laws of war that we've talked about in previous episodes, in what may and may not be used as a weapon and so on. Particularly, so that the classic and, and the easiest example would be frangible or fragmenting rounds. Now, these are common in police forces. Uh, around the world to use a, um, an expanding hollow point round, uh, particularly in the United States, it's fairly common. There are common civilian purchase uh, for a self-defense round, particularly in, not in Australia where you can't have a weapon for self-defense, but in countries where you can. Uh, but of course, they're prohibited under the various um, international humanitarian laws for the use of soldiers in armed conflict. But again, as a private contractor, as a civilian security employee, they're perfectly legal. So this raises some other normative questions about what may and may not be used as a weapon that PMCs are able to move around. Now, I wouldn't say this is a major issue that you know demands attention, but it's worth mentioning another sort of aspect that makes them a bit different. But it's never going to be a major issue that needs mentioning until something goes wrong, in which case it's going to be a big issue. Now, there's no way for the ICC, for example, to charge a private individual. They simply lack the ability. They have to be referred by a state. The ICC can't simply go, I'm going to go and charge that dude. The ICJ is exactly the same, right? The ICC can send a prosecutor, it, they have like three of them, to go and find out information and bring charges, but it's very rare. They don't lack the resources. And so what that means, of course, is that, I mean, legally, and this is a great argument to have um, among international lawyers, but the argument can certainly be made on both sides. Either because a particular state is paying them, they therefore have responsibility for ensuring that they, as with any other armed forces that operate for the benefit of that state, abide by the relevant international law. Of course, you could also argue that they're not uniformed soldiers and therefore aren't covered by the New Geneva Convention. Of course, if you argue that, then you've got to argue that they aren't, for example, unclassified combatants, they're not legitimate combatants, and therefore aren't entitled to the protections of international law. Which, of course, in their contracts and in their sofas, they demand to be. I mean, that's... The the reason you are a combatant, of course, is to protect yourself from domestic criminal charges revolving from use of force, right? But the problem with the sofas and this sort of thing is the way that they work with private military contractors is they also protect them from international humanitarian law. And when those... You cannot be tried as a non-combatant and you cannot be tried as a combatant, then you exist in this legal limbo. Right? And the fact that they're backed by the most powerful state on the planet at the moment means that no one's going to go after them for being what the US would otherwise call an illegal combatant. Now, for those at home, that's not a real term, but the US uses it, so we'll use it here. Yeah, and, and that's actually worth noting. The term illegal combatant, as stated by the ICRC and other numerous legal scholars, 
exists. It actually, it, it is a real term in American domestic law. American domestic law does not apply to international conflict. That's the domain of international law, and it, it is not a term that exists there. But it is fast becoming a normative approach. And again, this is sort of... For those at home, I'm shaking my head at Alice, so that's why he stopped. It is rapidly becoming accepted within American domestic legal context and within um, military law, right? Um, but it is still vi- widely challenged in the academic literature. This brings up the question, though, how powerful academics are. And the reason why I say it's becoming a norm is that outside of academia, although we are the ones who talk the most about norms, the practical realities is that that's how these people have been treated for a very long time. Well, the the practical reality, of course, is, is very much tied to the fact that we get the concept of a legal or non-traditional combatant from the practice of drone strikes and, and, and you know automated killing. Now, that in and of itself has been challenged, the legality and morality of that. But because, because it's the major states doing it, no one can go after them for it. And therefore, by association, the illegal combatant term has been allowed to proliferate. Yeah, which is, I would challenge you, Austin, and this is one of the rare moments we get to have a fun argument with each other, so I'm enjoying this. But I challenge that's how norms are formed is that it is the major powers doing it, no one can stop them, and that becomes that becomes normative. That becomes the practice. Or just uh, Us academics, we can rail against it all we like. No one listens to us. But academia is the intelligentsia, right? You know, you can argue that all you want, but you have to remember that norms are reflective of discourse, right? And and you can there we can have our, hours for arguments about this and bore our listeners to tears, but the biopolitical discourse that exists around drone warfare and around illegal combatants is such that there is no discussion of that norm right now the fact that a neo-realist approach would would argue that is is inherently you know justifiable to argue but it only works when that state has total control over the arms system and the the balance of power in which it's operating otherwise it can't do it i'd also point out i don't necessarily like that that's how it's happening i'm just willing to recognize that that is I guess the other thing... Actually, before we keep going, um, it's also worth noting at this point that increasingly drone warfare and and the ability to conduct hostilities through unmanned aircraft is being conducted with the support of private military contractors, Um, not sort of Blackwater types, but a lot of the sort of more Serco... Um, back backroom um, logistics contractors sort of things are happening. Civilian pilots are being contracted to fly the unmanned aircraft to their forward operating bases and back. Civilian engineers are being used on the ground in places like Afghanistan. Well, as I understand it, Australia took delivery of a number of um, UAVs for uh, our border protection, and that was delivered by a drone um, run by uh, Blo- yeah, Boeing? Yeah, um, a Boeing Global Hawk, yeah. We've got a bunch of them in. We've purchased a number of others that will be deployed. For what Alice is talking about, of course, is the 2016 Defence White Paper, um, which talks about the purchase of several Triton uh, Boeing UAVs, which are the maritime unarmed version of the Reaper drone, which everyone's more familiar with. These are operated, of course, by Australia's Border Force, which is a fancy name we have for our immigration department. So the final point that I bring to, and again, it's an... um, uh, an accountability thing, but it's it's a slightly different spin on this. It's about the contractual obligations and and the the motivations of the people involved. Uh, a PMC who's hired to stabilize a country will, in the modern sense, particularly in a globalized environment, probably will stabilize that country or try to. They'll make a genuine effort. That's what they're being paid to do. But more often, historically and today, that's not what the contract stipulates. They're 
hired to secure a particular region or a particular installation, a mine or an oil rig or, or a boat, going back to our piracy episode. And so they'll do that instead. And that can come at a cost of public good or um, human lives. If that's their job is only to com- to secure the, the mine or the oil derrick or whatever, they don't they have no obligation to care, certainly not legally, and, and you know, the mor- morality of it all is sort of a, a personal sliding scale, I guess, to, to do anything beyond that. So if they secure a mine that's poisoning um, the water supply, like in the case of Bougainville, that's their job. That's all they, they care about. They have no obligation to the country that that mine is in or um, the people who live in that area. That's just not in the contract. Whereas at least... Theoretically, a government involved in that has some sort of obligation, and particularly when it's a foreign democracy, there is an, an expected a- accountability for um, the provision of general human security by the people who live in that country. So the big opposition to the Iraq war, for example, primarily comes from a combination of, of course, the American soldiers dying over there, but also the failure to secure Iraq domestically and the ongoing insurgency there, the, the failure to preserve the, the, the Iraq's territorial and, and domestic sovereignty. So that kind of pressure just does not exist. I mean, you can question it in the case of a state, and that's perfectly legitimate in a lot of senses, but the PMC is completely non-existent. Yeah, there's, there's no public uh, pressure on a PMC to end a war. There's no public pressure on a PMC to avoid civilian casualties, unless, of course, they get caught, in which case sometimes there is, aka Blackwater, which then, of course, changed its name and re-emerged as a new company. Um, which is still operating. And so, but I mean, again, this isn't new, right? As I mentioned, for example, the Condottori were well known for taking over city-states they didn't like. One of the earliest examples of what we're talking about here, of course, is the Normans. Um, An expedition of Norman knights went to Sardinia, paid to go to protect them from uh, Barbary raiders, and they just took over the state because they felt like that was what they had to do, um, and they could do. Now, again, when you look at something that's designed for profit, um, there is no benefit for them to end the war, end the conflict. And so mercenaries must always operate within a framework. And then this is not to say, that, and for all their moral problems, mercenaries have and always have been very effective tools. Um, and you know, even in the cases of places like Bougainville, Somalia is another example, uh, certain conflicts in East Africa. It's hard to argue that mercenaries ever did anything that was ineffective from a conflict perspective. What they did, of course, was incredibly morally reprehensible in certain times, but that's not what we're talking about here. And until such time as states come to the perspective that mercenaries are no longer a practical solution to a war that, let's face it, is probably not going to end anytime soon in reality, then it doesn't really matter from a political perspective whether a mercenary company is legitimately trying to fulfill the spirit of their agreement as opposed to the word of their agreement. In the end of the day, and to tie this off as we're running out of time, War is simply good for business. Well, sadly, that's all we've got time for tonight. We'd like to wish all of our listeners a very Merry Christmas and a very happy holidays. Once Christmas is behind us, Austin and I will return with a new series to explore more deeply some of the ideas that underpin the academic study of both conflict and international relations. Until then, you can find us on our social media or on Reddit in the links below. And once again, thank you for listening, and good night.